Last week we had a little break from reading uh, through the book of Job. Today I want to preach about the reading from Job and also the gospel. But before that, just to remind us of something I said last Sunday, which was the Feast of St. Luke, our patronal feast, about the importance of being a parish that is dedicated to St. Luke. Luke is the great theologian of the New Testament, uh, the great theologian of the Holy Spirit. And in his gospel, he writes about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus. And in the book of Acts, his volume two, he writes about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. You and I have now become the beneficiaries of the Holy Spirit and the fiduciaries of the Holy Spirit, the stewards of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, it is the affirmation that your own personal history is tied up in some ways with the history of God's saving purposes in the cosmos. And so we have a great benefit and great responsibility as we move forward. I noticed that just now at this liturgy, I didn't think about it so much at nine or at eight, that the colic, the opening prayer for the day, asks, we ask God to increase in us faith, hope, and charity. You hear that said a lot, those three things together. Just to remind you, we believe that at our baptism, we receive three theological virtues, and they are faith, hope, and charity. They are what they call infused in us. And so they are resources that we can call upon. In some places now, and in the biblical translations that we read in English now in church, it's not faith, hope, and charity, it's faith, hope, and love, which may be more comprehensible to some, and charity sounds like a kind of condes uh, con con condescending. condescending, thank you. And, uh, uh, you know, lady bountiful approach to uh, love and doing good works. But it's actually a very powerful word. And we should pray for in us for the ability to uh, be generous with other people. To be willing to extend in whatever way God wants us to do that. So, today, we finally get to the end of Job, where we, oh, at last, moving through Job, going through one horror after the next. And it has raised many questions for us as we think about this and meditate on these texts about how God is. What is God like? At the opening of the book of Job... Uh, the adversary, which is another word for Satan, like advocate, it's not the devil, but he uh, has a bet with God that God can afflict Job with the worst kind of adversity and ultimately it will force him to curse God. And so throughout the entire book we have Job being put through one thing after another and he still doesn't do this, but things occur to him as they would occur to us. The first question I always want to ask is, do you believe that God is capricious? 
that on a whim he would afflict us with terrible uh, afflictions of one kind or another? How do we understand what it means when we speak of the providence of God, of God's omniscience, of God's omnipotence, and of God's immortality? What does it mean? I was talking about this at Episcopalian 101 yesterday, and it occurred to me when I wrote this sermon Uh, There is a view in Christianity, in many uh, species of Christianity, that speaks about the providence of God in a way that is so overpowering that it makes us feel that we are completely helpless, which is what the intent is, by the way, uh, with regard to how we understand God's work in the world. In some places, this is Reformation Sunday. You won't get that here. Oh, no, 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 no. But in the Reformation in the 16th century, uh, the theology that developed out of the Reformed tradition has a particular understanding of what they mean when they speak of the providence of God, of God's omniscience, omnipotence, and immortality, and in one sense of our helplessness before this all-powerful God. I do believe in God's providence, and I haven't called on God's providence as much as I should have over time. And I believe that God is present to me, which is an important thing. But there's a paradox in Christianity. The Reformers believed, of course, that what had happened was that something had interposed itself between us, the individual believer, and God. And that thing was the church, the institutional church, and all of its practices and superstitions and difficulties. And it was pure in the New Testament period, and very soon after that it got off the rails until Martin Luther came on the scene. That's the way I was raised, you know. We had Jesus and the Bible, and then off the rails, and all of a sudden, Martin Luther shows up. Yay! <laughs> right? Martin Luther said, we got to get rid of all this stuff, and we got to do it. He, he wasn't as bad about that as some of the other reformers, for sure. But the issue is... Um, maybe the church is not as bad as we think it is. And we ought to also understand that it is the vehicle by which we understand in greater depth the providence of God and its nature. Because the Reformed view flowed out of a medieval understanding of the way God works in the world. Right? Life is nasty, brutish, and short, so you better get yourself together because you're going to go somewhere else where it'll either be or you don't have to make that sound, but you know what I mean. So I've been thinking about this because Job is concerned about God being unseen, that he can't see God. He doesn't know where God is. God is hiding in the darkness. 
He wonders why all these things have happened to him. He doesn't hear from God. He has been given a huge amount of of unhelpful advice from his friends. And what is underneath all this? Something that in the wisdom tradition in the Hebrew Bible is part of what we understand about uh, maybe God's providence and where the reformers got some of this stuff. In the book of Proverbs, the trouble that you're in or the good things that you're experiencing are the result of your own efforts. So if you're up against it, you must have done something. In the book of Job, he's an innocent man who has been afflicted. And so for the writers of the book of Job, it had something to do with what do we do with unmerited suffering? How do we understand what it means that people go through stuff? I've been a pastor for a while, and I have to tell you that the stories that I've heard uh, over time have shown me, and the lives of the people who I've been involved with have shown me something about how people have developed the ways and the means to live in the midst of great suffering. You know, you can make a decision either to perish utterly or to understand something about what happens at the end of the book of Job. God has told Job about his mystery. That God is a great mystery. So here's what you and I tend to do to deal with that conundrum for many. We say, well, that's okay. I don't believe any of that stuff anyway. I'm God. I'm omnipotent, omniscient, or I want to be omnipotent, omniscient, and immortal. And in my life, I have always been very disappointed that that is not so. Edwin Friedman, who I talk about all the time, used to say, this is what people struggle with all the time. They're not omnipotent, omniscient, and immortal. All-powerful, all-knowing, and immortal. It's tough isn't it, when you stop to think about that. So God restores Job twofold. And here's another thing that's in the book of Job that is an affirmation in the great Jewish tradition with a capital T, that there is a tradition that says if a person loses everything unjustly, it is to be restored to them twofold. So you read in the end of the book of Job today that Job has been restored twofold, twice over, of all the things that were taken away from him. And he has wives, he has beautiful daughters, he's got a lot of donkeys. I always love those kind of passages. It's like the end of, um, you know, the, the uh, um, what is that small thing, the, the book? Jonah, sorry. I'm having a trouble trouble here. At the end of Jonah, it says, Do you dare question me about why I have spared Nineveh, that great city of over da-da many people and also many cattle? <laughs> so think about the fact that uh, 
God is not capricious, that the providence of God ultimately is a great mystery, and that does not mean something we cannot understand, but it means something that is infinitely knowable. It describes God's restorative work in the world as we seek to know God's purposes for us. So it may also be a commercial message for living a life of intention. You know, what do you do? How do you respond to the divine initiative begun in you? If the reformers are to be believed, there's nothing that we can do ourselves to save ourselves, and I believe that. But I also believe that that statement is meaningless unless we respond to the divine initiative. And in the agreements, by the way, between Roman Catholics and Protestants on the issue of salvation by grace through faith, there has been an agreement that they have come to, those who care about these things, that the Roman Catholic view, which many Anglicans hold and did hold even after the English Reformation, and that is that when we speak of salvation by faith through grace, that cannot be understood apart from hope and charity. So that's why in this collect we pray for the increase of faith, hope, and charity in us as the cooperators with the divine initiative. And there's ways that you can put this in your hands. You've heard me say this to you over and over again. My teacher, Urban Holmes, who used to say, we are on a mystical path which involves purgation, emptying, study, discipline, and patience. If you do these things, you are able now somehow to see more clearly God's purposes for you. By the way, purgation is an old term which means to purge from your habits of being and relating those things that keep you separate from God and God's presence. And emptying is the process whereby in your personal prayer, even very brief or extended, has uh, something to do with your uh, increasing ability to remove from this your distraction. Nobody can ever do that completely and entirely. But it is an important thing to do, and perhaps we get some deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes. So, Mark's Gospel. This is the last of the healing stories in Mark's Gospel, and we will now move from this into the beginning of the movement to Jerusalem and the events of the Passion. Some biblical scholars believe that Mark's gospel originally was just the passion narrative. And all of the things that came before that were added by the later tradition and by writing in the production of the gospel. So that the, the uh, passion is the center. And today we have a gospel about uh, the difference between looking and seeing. In all of Mark's gospel before this, the only beings that recognize Jesus and use his messianic titles to describe him are the spirits and the demons. This is for the purpose, Mark's purpose, to say Jesus has dominion over the unseen world and the seen world. And today, a blind man 
who cannot see refers to Jesus by one of the messianic titles, Son of David. And Jesus asks him, what would he like him to do for Bartimaeus? And he said, give me my sight. And Jesus heals him. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is saying and doing stuff, and all of the people around him don't have a clue. They have no idea what this might mean. And today, here we have another example of this, and we have an example of somebody who could not see, but could had insight and the power of that. Have you ever met somebody, one of the things we use to describe a person who seems to have a deep intuitive nature and also imagination, uh, somebody who might be far-seeing. And this can be a, a small, commonplace thing, like somebody who can walk into a house that looks like a shambles and say, well, you know, this place has real potential. I would do this and this. I would do that and that. And this is how I think it would look uh, if we went in and did those things. And sure enough, if you go in and do those things, bang, it looks like that. And they're able to see that at the end. And there's many people who can't see that. That's not a character defect, by the way. It's just how people are different. But it's an example of the way in which we understand someone who has uh, a, a way to see forward. And Bartimaeus, who couldn't see, could see forward to gaining his own sight an affirmation of his spiritual insight and the ability now to follow the Savior. So Mark is once again saying, once you see more clearly, you'll be able to put two and two together. And in our own lives, if we live lives of intention, we're able to do that. We're able to put two and two together and to see more clearly, to see more clearly how we cooperate with the providence of God. Episcopalians don't believe like some reformers who would say, you shouldn't bend down and pick up a straw unless there is express warrant to do it in the Bible. Episcopalians say, if it's not expressly forbidden in the Bible, lean over, pick up the straw. You know? That's how we think about those things. And the reason we do that is because when we understand it, there's something in that whole process that gives us some insight into God's purposes for us as we live. So this week, think about what kind of a God do you believe in? I don't think God is capricious. If you have any insight about God's presence in your life, any time that occurred, think about how it happened and what it was. When I was in seminary, there was a book written by two sociologists called American Piety. This is in the early 70s. And it was, you know, sociologists hand out a lot of questionnaires and interview people and stuff. And in the course of their research, nearly 90% of the people who were questioned said that at one point in their life, at least one point, they had a distinct uh, feeling of the presence of God. They knew God was present to them 
in a very clear and unambiguous way. An example of this would be on Bill Moyer's series with Joseph Campbell, The Power of Myth, when in one episode Joseph Campbell said, when I was on the track team at Columbia University in the 1930s, I was standing on the track one day and I had an absolute understanding of who I was, what the the purpose was for me to be in the cosmos, and how I was supposed to move forward. Doom. Just like he didn't make that sound when he did it. But that's what he, he realized. And it lasted very, for just a very brief period. And I think most, if not all of us, have that experience. We maybe just discount it or don't pay attention to it. But this is a commercial message for paying attention to it. Uh, allow the presence of God to come into your life. And know finally that God's restorative healing power is always available to you as a free resource from the God who unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you. Amen.